I feel like the work of sustainability isn't the job of one sector, one business, one industry alone. It's necessarily uh, collaborative, systemic, which I think raises questions about the kinds of knowledge, skills, and competencies um, that we could be focused on. Welcome to The Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and in this episode, we'll be diving into the topic of educating teams on sustainability within large companies. The episode explores the importance of education and sustainability, community engagement for large companies, and the challenges of initiating sustainability education programs. We look at the creation and impact of sustainability ambassador programs, providing insights into their objectives. The episode concludes by exploring strategies for building support within organizations emphasizing effective communication and collaborative leadership for those looking to champion sustainability in their companies. Tune in as we explore sustainability, education, and leadership on this episode of The Green Hour. As we grow up, learning becomes a big part of our lives. It shapes who we are and influences the paths we choose for our careers. It's clear that education is crucial for success. Malcolm X said it well, education is the passport to the future. For tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. These words highlight the importance of getting ready today for what lies ahead tomorrow. Beyond individual growth, education plays a pivotal role on a broader scale, particularly in the realm of sustainability. Clear education is crucial to dispel misunderstandings and pave the way for a positive collective impact. In corporate America, leading education on sustainability within companies is no easy task, but when handled correctly, the impact is immense. On this episode of The Green Hour, we're excited to have someone who's dedicated a lot of their career to guiding sustainability education programs. Nadine Goods is the practice lead for strategy at Nature R&D, a nature-inspired research and development firm. Nadine is a seasoned sustainability leader and a 2019 Clean 50 honoree in education and thought leadership. She led corporate sustainability strategy, partnership development, and employee engagement initiatives for Sustainable Business Pioneer Interface for more than 10 years. Before working in the corporate world, Nadine taught in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University and served as a research fellow with the Institute for Research and Innovation in Sustainability. Education is a key driver for progress. To meet global sustainability goals, we need everyone to work together. Education plays a vital role in this. We must help people understand the importance of sustainable solutions. As Herbert Spencer put it, the great aim of education is not knowledge, but action. Emphasizing that education is about inspiring action for a better, more sustainable world. All right, welcome back to the Green Hour. Today we're joined by Nadine Goods. Nadine, thank you so much for, for joining us. I've, I have enjoyed um, spending time with you and learning from you and just feeling the energy and passion that you have for sustainability. So um, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Preston. These are topics I do have a lot of passion and energy for, so it's a delight to have the chance to speak with you about them. So I want to start off, Nadine, talking about, it's not specifically sustainability, but talking about um, your, your world travels. Last time I'd spoken with you, I forget if it was Peru or where it was, but you were you were on some travels, doing some hikes. Not not normal hikes, not not like a couple hours of hikes, but these are long like expedition type hikes. 
Um, so where have you been traveling lately and what are, what are some of those things that you've been doing? Well, thanks for the, the question, Preston. Uh, 2023 was an epic travel year for me. It felt like I was making up for some lost time through the pandemic. Like a lot of folks, I put a lot of travel on hold. Uh, but I'm I'm really fortunate to have um, a partner and good friends who are all really interested in outdoors um, activities. And um, one hike that I've been planning with uh, a group of friends, uh, we tend to plan our travel around um, kind of big uh, events like marathon running or big hikes, multi-day hikes. Uh, so the one we did in July was the Tour du Mont Blanc, which uh, mm. was just an incredible opportunity to hike 176 kilometers through the Alps, through three countries. Um, I lost a couple toenails, to be honest. I should have trained a lot more than I did. I think I was a bit overconfident. Um, so it was very humbling. Uh, it felt incredibly surreal to be surrounded by so much natural beauty. Um, but it was, I found it really physically challenging. Um, it was great preparation for my uh, second multi-day hike in 2023 through the West Highland Way in Scotland. So this was actually a delayed honeymoon that my husband and I took. Um, so seven days, uh, about 150 kilometers through the West Highlands in Scotland. And it was just an amazing journey. Um, we stayed in some lovely places. Uh, the benefit to this trip was we decided to indulge ourselves and have our luggage, like our baggage, transported from town to town. So we were only mm. hiking um, with day packs, which uh, made a huge difference. And then the last trip of the year, um, I, I had the chance to go to Peru. My mom's from Peru, and I hadn't been back oh. in 17 years. So it was really, really special to be there with her and to bring my husband for the first time. And we had the chance to uh, hike around Cusco and Machu Picchu. And um, it was uh, a, a pretty wonderful experience. So <laughs> thank you for asking. This, this is not a normal year by any means, but uh, I, I, it's great that we, you know, um, when we met, it just so happened that all of these plans were in the works. Yeah, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm definitely jealous. I, I've never been on uh, that lengthy of a hike. I can remember me and, me and my friend when we were in college, I think it was actually during COVID, during 2020, we went out to Colorado, and we, we were college athletes, so we were like, oh, we don't need to train for this, we can yes. just hop on this mountain and, and hike you know we work out all the time we get on some 14ers in colorado and we hadn't adjusted to the altitude yeah. and we are getting i mean we're just like hands on knees dogs and like elderly people are passing us just like they're walking down the road it's so easy yeah. for them and we're like feeling like we're about to, <laughs> we're about to pass out yeah. so it was a very humbling experience i will say and, and training's a big part especially yeah. um, when considering the altitude um, and then talking about um, Peru, the number one item on, on my bucket list is actually to go to Machu Picchu and to hike the Inca Trail. I read this book, I can't remember the exact title, but Leave Only Footprints was a part of it. And this guy had gone out to uh, Machu Picchu and done, I think it's a four day, three night hike on the Inca Trail, um, all the way up to Machu Picchu. And ever since I read that book, all I've wanted to do is go out to Machu Picchu and do that. Um, so hopefully one day um, mm -hmm. I, I will do that. Probably not by myself. My family, I almost did it uh, last year. And my family was like, nope, you, you cannot go to Peru by yourself. <laughs> um, but hopefully, hopefully in the future, I'll be able to do that. Oh, I certainly hope so. I, uh, I, I think you won't be disappointed. And keep me posted on your plans, for sure. I am very yeah. excited to hear this is on your uh, destination list. Well, Nadine, the listeners now know you as a world traveler. Um, all we heard about was 2023, and it sounds like you went all over the world. But looking at your career in sustainability all the way from the beginning, could you dive into that a little bit? And even you can dive into growing up, I mean, where you're from, and how you got to the place you are today. Yeah, I'm happy to share a bit about my journey and 
how how this journey began. I uh, I was born in Winnipeg, in uh, the center of Canada, prairies of Canada, and I kind of tuned into uh, issues and topics around sustainability and environment at a very young age. I was very very interested in science, biology, ecology, and I knew um, early on that I wanted to go to university get an undergraduate degree in environmental sciences. And at the time, I'm going to be dating myself, uh, there was only one university in Canada that offered a bachelor's in environmental science where I could major Mm. in ecology. And that was specifically what I was looking for. So I moved to Guelph after I graduated from high school. And um, at the University of Guelph, I definitely felt inspired, but I... um, I left that program feeling like I probably wasn't meant to spend um, my career collecting soil samples, you know, working on my own um, or being in a lab. I really learned that I was interested in working with people, with communities, with organizations on our big sustainability challenges. And that led me to an internship actually in Washington, D.C., Uh, working on policy development uh, with the Organization of American States and their Office of Science and Technology. And a lot of my projects there focused on new environmental technologies. Um, And that, you know, was great for the time, but I knew that I wanted to educate myself more. I uh, moved to Vancouver. I did a master's in community and regional planning at the University of British Columbia which was um, really known as uh, kind of North America's premier sustainability planning school. And I thought this was going to be the place for me to really work on these big challenges, how to mobilize change in communities and organizations around sustainability. And during that time, I got really involved in the campus sustainability movement. So really, you know, asking questions about how our colleges and universities you know, post-secondary institutions, um, you know, organizations that purport to train, educate, graduate the future leaders of the world, how can these institutions serve as models of sustainability? And um, I ended up focusing my master's thesis research on um, the University of British Columbia, one of Canada's first universities to adopt a sustainable development policy and what that meant in practice. And through that research, I learned a lot about (laughs) organizational change, organizational learning, organizational development. And um, I felt like I was barely scratching the surface. Um, So it led me to do more research on organizational change for sustainability. I moved to Toronto started a PhD in environmental studies at York University. Um, And then partway through the program, I ended up getting an opportunity to uh, take on a role in the private sector with um, one of the world's most pioneering sustainable businesses, um, Interface, Interface Flooring. So I left academia, I took a leave of absence and ended up working for Interface, a global flooring manufacturer, for 11 years. And a lot of my role there focused on customer engagement, employee engagement, employee education, leadership development opportunities, um, and really creating positive learning environments for sustainability. Um, And since then, uh, I left Interface at the end of 2018 And I've been teaching in multiple executive education programs on topics like circular economy, climate leadership, um, sustainability and social responsibility strategy. Um, And I'm finally in uh, the the final stages of my PhD research and I'm I'm focused on sustainability education um, and uh, from an academic lens. Again, so <laughs> that's a, a little bit of the the journey, but uh, I'm I'm happy to dive in where you feel it might be relevant. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think staying here on this topic of education in sustainability is it, it, a really big topic. 
I think a lot of people, when they think of working in sustainability, they're thinking of, you know, let me track emissions, let me work in product circularity, track water usage. A lot of the technical, more uh, engineering type backgrounds to go into sustainability that I didn't realize until I came into my role that I'm in now that sustainability engagement, um, external engagement on sustainability, internal engagement on sustainability is such a crucial thing inside large corporations. And I love the point that you made on you know creating learning environments for sustainability. I was sitting um, at my house in late 2022, I think it was December, and that's when I got the idea for the podcast because what I wanted to do was spread education on sustainability um, and try to try to help people understand the various topics that that are sustainability. And so now we're here now, and, and I'm continuing to spread this education. But I want to ask you. In, in your experiences, um, in the variety of experiences in academia and the private sector, how important is education in the sustainability industry? Well, I'm, I'm really biased. Um, as far as my response to this question, I, I think it's mission critical. I really do. And I hesitate a little bit when I hear the term sustainability industry because I come from the perspective that sustainability permeates all industries. It, it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking that sort of honors the biophysical realities of the earth and, uh, and respect for life, ideally. Um, and I feel like education can serve to perpetuate dominant economic systems and mindsets. And so when I talk about sustainable education, um, which is a term that um, folks like Stephen Sterling write about. He wrote a book called Sustainable Education, which really makes the point that um, there are context, substance, and process implications to how we think about education. So addressing global and local contexts thinking about what we're learning or teaching about, and then the process of learning. You know, there are um, so many questions um, and there's a wonderful global conversation happening right now about uh, sustainability competencies. Like, what are we trying to teach? What are we educating for? Again, addressing how educational systems are perpetuating a certain way of doing business, um, running economic systems that are uh, perhaps not in tune with the biophysical realities of the planet? And might there be a different system, a different way of thinking about profit, about value creation that we could be um, focused on and working on and leveraging educational systems to support a sustainability uh, purpose, for example? Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just pause there, but. Um, I, I, I see this as a, a cross-industry uh, project. I, I, I feel like the work of sustainability isn't the job of one sector, one business, one industry alone. It's necessarily uh, collaborative, systemic, which I think raises questions about the kinds of knowledge, skills, and competencies um, that we could be focused on. Yeah, I, I would say I'm in line with everything that you just said. Education, education moves the needle with all things, and sustainability should be intertwined with every organization, with every government. Because as you look at the root of sustainability, some people will hear sustainability that term, and they think climate change. They might think um, of political discussions around sustainability. But at the heart of sustainability is, I would say, efficiency, looking at how you can minimize waste, mm. um, how you can use water, um, use carbon, the most effective means possible. It's looking at how you can drive change in the community. Um, it's looking at how you can just be better in, in all the things that you do. So getting out and teaching people, and I would say opening up people's eyes around that, it's so critical. I mean, you said mission critical. I think that's that's a great term to use uh, because a lot of people have been been blinded around the term of sustainability 
And it's really just getting them out there and seeing it. Um, I remember some of my friends, and I probably mentioned this on the podcast in the past, some of my friends, when I started working on in sustainability, they didn't really know much about it. Um, just about you know what they'd seen on the news or what they'd seen on Twitter. Um, and I was like, why don't y'all come to a, to a local cleanup with me? And I'll show you. I'll show you what humanity's doing. I'll, I'll show you what, what our actions are causing. And we did, a, we did a cleanup with the Waterkeeper Alliance, a great group. And in Cobb County, Georgia, it was just mounds and mounds of uh, trash on this trail um, right beside this local um, creek, creek bed. And I remember my friends looking around and being like, we didn't realize that this is what happens. This is what people do. This is what happens when you, you might throw a, throw a bottle out your window on, on the interstate. This is where it goes. And it was really interesting to see like all of the trash that was there. Um, and after that, they, they started looking at you know, what they were doing in their daily lives. And I think that they actually, I mean, not, not that I think I know, they actually started using things like hydro flask um, instead of plastic bottles. And that whole experience of just walking them out and showing them what we're doing um, helped it to change their mind around, you know, mm -hmm. sustainability. So education, education can drive positive change when it is presented in, in the correct ways. And from what I've seen, Nadine, of all your work, I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, in, in the private sector and in, in the um, in academia, you're doing it for the right reasons and really driving positive change. Um, so I just I just thank you for the work that you're doing, um, creating this positive change for, for everyone around you. Well, thanks so much for that, Preston. And I appreciate your story. I, I think you're spot on with creating those um, experiences where there's that hands on you can sort of touch, feel, smell, like that sensory experience to help foster that sort of connectedness. I think for me, that's what sustainability at the heart of it is, is this understanding that my actions today can have an effect on something or someone else now or at a later time here or in another place. And that interdependence, that interconnectivity I think really is at the nexus of sustainability for me. Um, and I think, you know, I'm really inspired by the work of uh, Kate Rayworth, who's um, done a lot of uh, work in publishing uh, around donut economics and has been really challenging uh, societies to think about how we can operate in a way that respects the biophysical limits of Earth and without compromising human dignity, human well-being, human health, human justice. So operating within that donut um, just really helps me think about what's at the heart of sustainability, because you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times it sort of gets boxed at these environmental factors, which are all super important, but there's that humanity piece to it. Um, and I think this is why I am really passionate about education and learning because I think, you know, you mentioned climate change and I think climate destabilization is one of the biggest challenges facing societies today. And um, many experts in the climate space believe that the technical solutions are out there. They're available. So what's missing? It's that human piece of it, the, the leadership, the courage, the will to perhaps challenge dominant systems, dominant narratives that are sort of hard to let go of, I think. And it raises a lot of questions about, um, you know, what in, in the spirit of transitioning to a more sustainable future, there are likely a lot of things that certain groups will have to let go of and discontinue in order to open up a more sustainable future for the masses, not just a minority. Yeah, um, to your point on climate change is, you know, one of the biggest threats of our time right now. During Climate Week last year, I spoke with Raj Shaw, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's really cool to see an organization like that with so much rich history, you know, take on this I don't want to say problem, but take on this big audacious goal of adopting solutions to climate change. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation pledged $1 billion over the next four or five years 
to address um, climate-related issues and, and to find solutions. To see an organization of that size and of that rich of history to see climate change as such a big issue, I think it's just telling um, that that it is such a big threat um, to to our time. And then to your point on um, you know really community engagement, we can look at the the environmental pieces. Um, of sustainability. But when we're looking at really the the part of ESG, the S, um, I'd say the social piece, engaging your community and, and engaging them in education is such a crucial thing. And I want to pivot here to talking a little bit about your your time at Interface. Um, I think it was around 11 years, 10, 11 years. Um, and the work that you did specifically in community engagement, community engagement within a large um, company how did you interact with and bring in um, the community in, in the work that you did with Interface? I think it's, um, again, foundational. Um, and it really builds on a sustainability mindset. So at Interface, I, I was fortunate to work with a company that had gone through a massive transformation in the mid-90s, um, and its founder was inspired to rethink the purpose of the company around sustainability. So all the work uh, that I had the opportunity to do with communities um, within Interface's value chain and beyond all stemmed from that fundamental mindset shift, the company's mission, vision, and purpose. Um, so I think that is really important to consider that that foundation was there. So that it was an expectation that the company would engage with communities around this. So it sort of went beyond philanthropy and volunteer work, which is all good. I don't want to simplify um, or dismiss any of that work, which we tend to associate with a lot of kind of corporate citizenship and social responsibility. Um, but at Interface, it really went to the level of thinking about what it means to be a restorative enterprise in the world. How do we redesign supply chains and engage marginalized communities that may not have the opportunity to participate in a global supply chain? So one specific example, um, you know, Interface was on a mission uh, in the early days to eliminate any negative environmental impact by the year 2020. And um, this inspired some of Interface's suppliers over time to think about their own sustainability commitments. And one of those yarn suppliers, Aquafil, uh, was inspired to think about um, recycling um, nylon fibers, uh, knowing that nylon is petro-based material, comes from oil, um, the biggest environmental culprit in Interface's supply chain, um, recycled nylon dramatically reduces the overall carbon footprint of uh, the company's products. And Aquafil found a way to recycle discarded commercial fishing nets into textile fibers. Um, so this was a game changer for the industry. Um, and the innovation team at Interface then asked the question, where would recycling fishing nets have the most positive impact in the world. So through a non-traditional business partnership with the Zoological Society of London, um, a not-for-profit that was doing a lot of marine research in the Philippines, uh, they suggested, why don't you explore some work in Danahon Bank, working with coastal communities that are suffering from overfishing. Many communities are living below the poverty line. Um, let's see what might be possible as far as uh, fishing net recycling. And a pilot project began with initial investment from Interface to set up um, community-based um, recycling systems where the communities benefited from an additional form of revenue. Um, communities were being paid fair market value for the nets that were being collected uh, by local residents. Uh, from the bottom of the ocean, from the shoreline. So the ecosystem benefited from waste elimination. Um, interface benefited from having an additional source of recycled nylon, uh, so additional source of recycled raw materials to help in their carbon footprint reduction. 
And um, what was, I think, really remarkable, remarkable about this particular project was that it became a self-sustaining initiative about sustainable, sustainable livelihoods. It went beyond charity. It went beyond a one-time beach cleanup. Um, communities were set up as community banking associations. So um, these communities uh, were lacking financial services beforehand. And through this initiative, they were able to set up opportunities for microfinancing. Um, so whether they were collecting fishing nets or another source of um, recycled raw materials, they had an infrastructure in place to um, enable sustainable livelihoods for the long term. Um, and this work has now been replicated in other parts of the world, in Cameroon and Indonesia, um, where communities are now part of global supply chains, um, where there's a social benefit, an eco-benefit, um, and an economic benefit as well, ecological, economic, and social. So really kind of calling into question what does it mean to practice restorative enterprise? How can we engage communities in a meaningful way that can have long-term sustainable impact? Um, so I, I like to share that example because it sort of gets beyond some of the usual um, or typical programs that we kind of go to, which are, again, important as far as uh, volunteering and thinking about some of the charitable work um, but I, I get excited about rethinking business models around social impact and um, and these kinds of factors as well. I'm writing this down, rethinking business models around social impact. That's, I think that's really powerful um, because a lot, I mean, you look at a lot of companies, a lot of large companies, um, you can look at ESU reports. I mean, I did some, I didn't do some work. I, I spoke with a company called Train Technologies when I was in New York. Um, with one of their with one of their presidents of the North America um, branch, and one of their big things was providing their employees with, I think it was a week of uh, volunteer time off um, per year. I forget how many hours that that came out to, but their whole initiative was around you know getting into the community, making a difference, and engaging their entire entire workforce, which I thought was really cool. But that example you just gave is is so so powerful um, because you went a step above philanthropy, a step above volunteering and created something that's like you said, self-sustaining. And I think if, if all companies could get to that level um, and not just, you know, to do a volunteer um, event every, every quarter, every month, but actually look at how they can rethink their business model around um, social impact, social change. I think that us as a, as a global community, could really hit our goals. Um, looking at like the Paris Agreement, looking at um, the SDGs. Yeah. If large companies took that took that example that you just provided, we we really could get get to that level um, that we need to get to. Um, the next thing I would say is with community engagement, did you face or, or did the company face any, I, I guess, any pushback um, during that whole process? Because it sounds like, I mean, that's a huge project. Um, was there any pushback? And if there was, you know, what did that spur from? Yeah. Oh, it's a really, really good question. Um, I have to say with this example, there was a lot of support. And I think part of the high level of support came from years of trial and error <laughs> and a few failures in the business. Um, so Interface has been on its sustainability journey since 1994. So this is a long-term <laughs> project, a uh, long-term mission. And uh, that initiative that I spoke about, the Networks uh, Global Partnership, uh, that came about, I believe, in, in 2012. So this was quite a ways into the journey. Um, and Interface had been experimenting with different ideas about um, the, the social benefit to sustainability. The company had managed to wrap its head around uh, a framework that was very much focused, um, as you had highlighted, a lot of the environmental factors. So eliminating waste, 
relying on renewable energy only, making sure nothing toxic leaves any of the facilities, closing the loop on all of its products, relying on resource-efficient transportation, uh, making products that are fully recyclable back into new products. All of the environmental factors were baked in, being measured, monitoring progress, but the social aspects were a little trickier. So our team had experimented with a fair trade carpet tile, um, which um, unfortunately did not turn out to be economically viable. It was really hard to find a market for it. Um, But so many lessons were learned from that project and others, other experiments. So I think what I'm reminded of is when we think about learning and nurturing cultures of sustainability is, you know, how do we inspire people to ask some of the tough questions, to challenge the status quo, to develop the courage to try something different? Um, and, And how do we ensure we learn from these experiences, understanding that some of them might be a bit more risky than others? Not all of them are gonna work. Not all of them are gonna be a success. But I think a lot of the lessons learned from some of these earlier experiments were really foundational to the success of the networks partnership. Um, so I think there was a lot of trust, uh, a culture of experimentation, and a culture of challenging the status quo, of encouraging employees to um, ask, like, how might we do things differently and feeling safe in doing so. So I'm just reminded of some of those cultural factors when we're talking about creating learning environments for sustainability. Um, How do we inspire asking those tough questions and then support some of the experiments that can lead to positive long-term outcomes? Obviously, they they were talking about a massive, massive project for a large company. But if we look at... um, sustainability education on more of a personal level, not not so wide and broad, but just more, I would say, on a micro level. Um, I would ask you the question, because obviously in all your experiences, it, it revolves around educating people around sustainability, around social impact. How can we get people involved? What, what can we do? So when you're approaching or, or in your career, when you've approached people on on education around sustainability, you know, how do you approach that? Um, because I feel like it can be tough when people have different backgrounds of knowledge around the topic. Maybe people have no knowledge on it. Maybe people have some. But how do you approach that? Um, and how did you approach that and, and are still approaching that in your career when uh, approaching people to educate them around sustainability? I, I have a couple of thoughts on this, Preston. So, um, I'm going to come at this from a couple of different angles because um, one of the hats I wear today is, in fact, um, teaching in um, executive education programs on uh, key sustainability topics like climate leadership, circular economy, sustainability strategy. So folks who are participating are um, presumably there out of personal interest, personal ambition, uh, you know, a desire to learn. There's already, you know, a predisposition to um, wanting to engage in these topics. So um, I feel like these opportunities um, become more enriched when folks are able to bring in their own personal experiences into the learning environment. So I'll come back to this in a moment. When I'm in situations like in a a large corporation, a large for-profit organization where um, perhaps there's, um, you know, a program starting for the first time where we might have a situation where participants are coming from very different levels of interest and (laughs) experience, uh, very different backgrounds. Um, some might be um, uh, kind of asked to be there. They might not be participating because of a personal desire. Um, I always like to start with um, a focus on what we have in common, because I think a lot of these topics can be 
controversial, can be potentially divisive. Uh, questions around sustainability are so values-based. Um, we all come from different experiences of childhood, um, you know, political systems. Um, so taking the time to understand uh, and listen and learn about um, the perspectives that different folks are bringing into the room, I have found um, has, has been helpful and can be helpful rather than an approach where there is a hyper focus on this is the problem we need to solve and this is how we're going to do it. Can we have a conversation about what, what for example, is the climate future you desire? What kind of climate future do you want to be a part of? Um, what's the climate future you want for your kids and generations to come? Um, can we frame these opportunities in a bit more of a positive narrative? Because I find, um, and understandably so, the science is telling us that things are looking a little grim when it comes to climate destabilization. And um, it's hard sometimes to get motivated when it feels overwhelming, when the language being used is crisis, collapse, um, you know, climate emergency. And, you know, we're hearing about uh, more and more phenomena like climate anxiety, climate grief. And um, it's hard to feel inspired and take action when you're coming from a place of um, feeling discouraged or you know, questioning, you know, what kind of impact can I have? It can feel overwhelming. So I have found that taking um, a bit of a positive narrative and focusing on what are the things that we value most, you know, and oftentimes they're very similar, you know, despite our differences and upbringing, you know, where we come from, uh, cultural backgrounds, many of us have things in common, like we prioritize our health, the health of our families. We prioritize relationships. You know, there are places in the environment that we really enjoy. And, um, you know, we were talking about traveling earlier in these dreams that we have of exploring new places. And so being able to start from a place of what we value um, can really help. I think in um, learning about the folks in the room, their experiences, and and that can help to inspire, I think, conversation and action on sustainability when we take the time to have that kind of dialogue, um, to create some of those shared um, or, or to explore what we might have in common, shared values, and create some shared language um, can really be an important starting point, I think. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And that that's something that I'll use in my job because I'll tell you, Nadine, one of the most challenging, um, I, I won't say projects, I guess positions that, I, that I've had is when I was a graduate assistant um, in my business school and I had to lead and, and teach a class of people the same age as me. Some people were older than me. Um, they were actually, actually my former football teammates. And it was challenging because the the class was called leadership and motivation, and the, the challenge was getting people to want to be engaged in the class and really want to learn, because a lot of them were just there to get the grade so they could graduate, but they weren't really engaging in in the conversations, engaging in the content. And I, I had a challenging time with it. Um, I brought in a lot of get, a, a lot of guest speakers, some very impressive people, but I still didn't get that buy in. But I think where I went wrong is exactly what you're saying. I, I didn't I didn't find the common ground with these people. I was just trying to show them and force something um, to them before I really realized, you know, what it is that we have in common. How can I get them engaged? So that that that's something that uh, that that I need to learn and and that I'll that I'll use. And, and the second thing I'll say is um, we actually um, do this project in my current job. A coworker of mine and, and I were, were leading this this call, and um, we're talking about sustainability to some of our people. One of the people just stops me at, at one part of the um, the call and says, "Preston, I get it. I understand what you're talking about. Like us, us as a society are doing bad. We're wasteful. We're we're using too much energy. I get it, but it doesn't relate to me." And I was like, "What do you mean it doesn't relate to you?" And she goes, "I'm in New York City. You know, we do our sustainability stuff." She said, "But." 
how do I know that I can actually make an impact when I recycle all my plastic bottles, recycle all my plastic, and then I see stats that only 3% of what you recycle of, of plastic bottles actually get recycled. She said, how, how does that make me want to have a passion for sustainability? And I remember uh, my coworker and I were, were talking afterwards, and I was like, she brings up a really good point um, and something that we need to look at on you know, how, how do you engage people that might be a climate denier or might, or might not want to hear anything that you say or might have been burned by something in the past? Um, so that's, that's the next question I'll ask you, um, just because I, I want to learn. Um, and that's something that, that I, I can use as well. You know, what do you do with those people? Maybe you're leading a workshop or maybe you were in the past and, you know, some of the people are engaged. Some of those people have a personal desire, like you said, but then there's some of those people that it's really hard to connect with because they are already closed minded, um, to this aspect of sustainability. How do you approach that in education when talking on sustainability? Well, I I do admire that example of, um, you know, this one colleague feeling perhaps a bit discouraged or disheartened because of some of the statistics she was observing. And I, I have to say, she's not alone. I hear comments like this a fair bit. And it reminds me, again, of the systemic challenge behind a lot of these concerns. So, Who's responsible for overseeing systems of recycling in local communities? What role do municipal governments have? We know that political platforms change on a regular basis every you know, few years. There's someone else with a new agenda in place. They're influenced by certain interests. It's, um, I think, the role of education, if we come back to a very foundational aspect of it, to raise those critical questions, whose interests are being served. If if you're noticing a disconnect, like only 3% of waste actually gets recycled, we need to, you know, sort of encourage a bit of a call to action, you know, encouraging municipal governments to um, rethink options. We need examples of, you know, communities that are actually seeing better success rates. Why is that happening? Let's refer to those examples and celebrate those and and use them in making the case for change uh, wherever we might be. Um, But yeah, so I think it begins with um, asking the challenging questions having the courage to send an email or write a letter to folks who are in positions of power. I think it's important to leverage educational systems to highlight these disconnects. Um, It's important to collect those uh, leading examples, the exemplary work, um, and to use that as evidence that it it is possible to manage waste in a different way. but I, I'm just reminded of how complex a lot of these challenges are and the role of education in building capacity among learners to begin to develop a comfort with complexity. Sometimes there are no straight, direct, sort of linear answers. And just the importance of asking those challenging questions, I, I think, gets at the heart of education and sustainability. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, and we'll, we'll pivot more. We'll pivot back to, to the macro. I just wanted to ask those questions for the listeners and then also for myself um, as I go through my career. And I'm faced with questions all the time around this topic of, of sustainability. So understanding how to navigate it, understanding how to connect with people is, is critical. Um, so now looking back at your career, um, specifically with large companies and specifically with leading sustainability education programs, within large organizations. This term I, I'd never heard of b- before um, I did some research on you, but sustainability ambassador programs. This sounds like a really cool topic um, of engaging internal employees around sustainability. And after you know, I, I researched um, you, Nadine, I'd seen some other companies that had these. UPS um, was one. I think they call it the sustainability trailblazers, maybe. But this is a really cool, uh, a really cool concept, and I'll just ask you to talk a little bit about what sustainability ambassador programs are, 
how this started, um, how, how you started this at previous companies, and then really what was the success? What were some of the successes that you saw? I know that's that's three questions on one, so we can we can go one at a time, and I can re-ask them. But but yeah, what is or, or what are sustainability ambassador programs? I I appreciate the question, Preston, and um, I think the the tiered question um, there are overlaps uh, among those uh, sort of sub questions. So hopefully, I'll be able to touch on all of them, but. So my experience with these types of programs uh, began while I was at Interface. And, you know, Interface is a global company with different regional business units. And the European business actually initiated the Sustainability Ambassador Program. And it began as a partnership with a third party, um, really with the intent to um, provide more consistent learning opportunities across all employees within that business unit. So um, there was, um, like among all the business units, a component of sustainability learning and education for new hires during onboarding processes. But then there were questions about, well, what happens after that? How do we continue to nurture a culture of learning and leadership development around our company's mission, vision, and purpose. And that's what led to this idea of, well, let's experiment with a, an ambassador-type program to at least offer these opportunities for employees who have a passion, who have an interest in continuing to learn more beyond just kind of the mandatory onboarding sort of stuff. And it was quite eye-opening to see the level of interest um, and employees from all units. So, you know, customer service, operations, sales, you name it, this was open to all employees. That said, uh, there was certainly um, a, a lot of interest among the sales team. Um, they took a lot of pride in um, getting uh, a certification as a sustainability ambassador, they voluntarily would add that um, accreditation to their business cards. They would self-identify as a sustainability ambassador with customers. It added to their credibility as a salesperson where they were able to um, provide additional value to their customers as far as being able to share um, you know, the latest and greatest with sustainability innovation in the company. Um, and I think the additional knowledge and learning, uh, I think, just added to their credibility and confidence as a salesperson in the field. Um, but the way the program was designed was very intentional around um, kind of honoring the employee as, as an important partner in the business's sustainability mission. So if, if you're interested in becoming a sustainability ambassador, we, we want to hear from you. What do you think we can do better? How do you wish to contribute to our sustainability journey? Um, so not only was there an investment in employees through learning and um, knowledge development, but there was also a focus on skill building. So um, innovation, action learning, project development. Um, there was learning about sort of key sustainability issues and topics so that folks would feel comfortable engaging in conversations about sustainability within and beyond the business, but then also to understand the business's progress on sustainability, taking the time to learn about where are the biggest gaps, where are the biggest challenges, um, where do we need to prioritize efforts to advance the company on its sustainability mission? And so to become a sustainability ambassador in this particular program, um, participants needed to propose a project idea that would help advance the company on its journey. And the company dedicated a budget for these projects. They would select one or two, maybe three, if there were some really good ones. These project proposals were reviewed by senior leadership. So there was kind of a recognition component to this, and those successful projects were actually implemented. And so that was one aspect of it. 
having engagement from senior leadership, having an action attached to the whole program and requirement process. And then once you've submitted your project, you're now part of this community of ambassadors. So you come back the following year, you're facilitating workshops with the next cohort of ambassadors. As as an ambassador, you might be responsible for leading a new higher orientation around sustainability. Um, You might have access to other professional development opportunities around sustainability. But the idea is to continue ongoing learning, that building of community, the giving back, and feeling like you're part of a bigger collective working to advance sustainability in your community, in your business. Um, So I think the kinds of projects that were being proposed and that were selected were really cool. And so being able to talk about, you know, colleagues um, proposing these projects, getting implemented, monitoring, evaluating, celebrating successes, it really went beyond sort of a, a green team responsibility. It sort of, um, I think it helped to build this um, larger company effort. Like it's not just the person with green in their title that's responsible for this. This is a, a company-wide effort. Um, you can be a leader in sustainability regardless of what your role is. Wow, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, thank you. Thanks for breaking that down. I think that is such a cool concept because in that you're making people feel valued. You you're making people understand that they can be part of the change. And I think about this this action piece that you tie to the program of presenting a project proposal after after this program, I guess, was towards the end of the program, I'm guessing is when it was. And I can just imagine salespeople if they had their project implemented, think about them talking to clients in the future, talking to, to big, big A&D firms or whoever and be like, oh, yeah, actually, um, we just implemented this project uh, in sustainability. And, oh, it was actually my idea. I mean, that, that would be huge um, for, for them personally um, in the sales field. And I, I do want to ask the question, you know, some of these some of these ideas that were proposed. You said that two to three of them were taken, implemented every year. Do you remember what some of those projects were? Um, I'd be very curious to know. Um, you can just, if you can remember any of them, maybe just talk about one of them. But what some of those projects were and how much value they really brought um, to the company. Uh, a few come to mind, but maybe I'll just highlight one of them for now. And uh, we can have a to-be-continued conversation, Preston. But uh, one project I really, really loved was because it just carried on a life of its own. Um, so, it, and it happened to be a salesperson who um, was going through the program and uh, felt really inspired to find a solution to all of the different samples uh, that customers in the architecture and design community end up receiving. And not all of these samples have an end of life solution. So whether it's ceiling tiles, floor tiles, uh, different fixtures, all of these samples end up collecting space in these client offices. And so this particular, um, employee, had the idea to create a partnership with the local school district to utilize these types of samples as art supplies in the schools. And so he started this initiative to create, um, I guess, a reclamation, a reclamation, a sample reclamation program um, that also helped to um, resource school activities and, um, and, and was, and found a solution to the waste in these client offices and uh, the social benefit to students and teachers uh, was really celebrated. And, and this particular employee was able to talk about this project, as you mentioned, and was really proud of it. And it continues, as far as I know, uh, today, but it has a, had a longstanding legacy in the community. Um, so some of the projects mm. can be as simple, you know, as, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of moving parts to something like this, as far as coordinating and having volunteers and the time to coordinate these sorts of things. 
Um, but the value to the client was was huge because they really appreciated having a solution to this waste challenge. So it helped in cultivating customer loyalty, a long-term business relationship that went beyond the sales transaction. It went, it, mm. it had, you know, a broader social impact. Um, there were also a number of, uh, you know, very technical solutions that were being proposed in the manufacturing process, finding new ways of cutting carpet tile, for example, that were more precise to save on waste in the manufacturing process. So there were some, you know, very specific technological projects, but a whole range from customer engagement to internal um, innovations. And, and I think it's, it's, it's cool to inspire, like you were saying, folks to feel like they can be part of the change. They can be part of that progress. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I wrote four things down just from that project of looking for a solution for samples. I mean, what what you did was you minimized waste, or they minimized waste. You had community engagement, uh, company exposure, and then sustainability education. Because every time that those samples were used, I mean, there could be education around sustainability. Oh, this is from so and so. This is how the process works. So, I mean, just that one thing. Um, you, you had four things come out of that. Four, four big big priorities. Which is awesome. And Nadine, the, the last question I'll ask you um, on, on our conversation today, for all those people out there that are listening, um, maybe they work in sustainability. Maybe they don't. Uh, maybe they have a passion for sustainability, but they work in finance or they work in sales. And they want to take what you've done um, and, and take your experience. And they want to do something similar inside their organization. That They want to be a champion for sustainability but they really don't know how to start or they don't really know how to get going with it. What advice or maybe tips um, would you have for those people that, you know, that are looking to champion sustainability within their companies? Yeah. Oh, I, I love that question. And I, I feel very humbled by it because to be perfectly honest, I feel like I have far more questions than I do answers, but a few ideas that might come to mind is, you know, starting a conversation and finding out if you might have any allies in the organization. Perhaps there are colleagues who are pondering the same types of questions. So starting the conversation, maybe seeing if there is an appetite for, you know, a lunch seminar or webinar, like you were saying, bringing in a speaker to inspire some conversation about, um, you know, innovation or creating additional business value through sustainability. Um, I think connecting with the natural world is a big one. One initiative that was a lot of fun that I um, helped to lead was called the 30 by 30 Nature Challenge, where um, employees across the business were encouraged to spend 30 minutes outside every day for 30 days and to share pictures of the activities they were doing outside um, for whatever it was the month of May or you pick a month, maybe it coincides with um, a company milestone or celebration. Um, but I think just connecting with the natural world, like 30 minutes outside, um, observing nature, fresh air, um, the wellness benefits to uh, reconnecting with nature, um, so much research has been published on ideas like biophilia and biophilic design. We know there are significant health benefits to spending time outdoors. How do we encourage more of that in our places of business? And I think the more we connect with other living creatures, with uh, the natural environment, the, the more we might be inclined to think about protecting it. And um, so, and it can inspire new conversations within the organization as well. Um, and, you know, asking questions again, like having the courage to ask those questions. If you're noticing like in the break rooms or lounge areas, if there's waste piling up or if there aren't recycling opportunities, can we encourage a different practice? Can we experiment? I think you know, treating sustainability um, sometimes as a starting point, as an experiment to try something new and see how it works, sometimes can be quite effective as opposed to, we need, a, we need a new recycling program or we need this, we need that. You know, if we frame it as, 
can we just try a pilot, you know, try it for a month and see what happens. Um, so some of these things come to mind as places to start. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it does start with a bit of a having the courage to ask a question and maybe finding an ally for support um, and starting to shift the conversation uh, internally. And you might be surprised by who's on board, who else is thinking the same way, and it could lead to some really, um, really important impact. Well, thank you so much for that, Nadine. And thank you again for for coming on um, the Green Hour today and just talking about we just talked about a lot of different topics, but I think they all they all kind of revolve around education and spreading education around sustainability, um, best practices, the best ways to do that, what to do when you might have a naysayer that that's kind of challenging you, you know how to how to react to that, and then how to start programs within your company um, around sustainability and what to do if you see something um, where you think that there needs to be change. Well, and I forgot to mention with that idea of maybe starting something where you're noticing an opportunity or potential gap. If the organization isn't already, a really important place to start is determining what the baseline is. So do we know how much water we're consuming? Do we know how much waste is being generated? Do we know our emissions? Do we know, you know, finding those metrics, having a baseline in place because once you start to implement actions, you want to be able to see the progress because all of these proof points will just add to your business case, will just serve as evidence mm. for, you know, more um, hopefully resourcing and investment in these kinds of things. And ideally, um, through different initiatives being implemented, you might see some savings um, on the bottom line as well, like financial savings, which can also help to build buy-in among those who are not necessarily <laughs> inclined at first. But I think having a, a metric, having those baseline metrics in place is, is pretty critical as a starting point. But of course, you need some support to set that up as well. And, and one point I'll make on that, uh, talking about financial savings, maybe maybe you can help the bottom line. I, I worked for, in my first job, a manufacturing company that produced injection molded um, panels using using uh, polypropylene. And these were recreational tiles that you snapped together and created spaces for different sports. But in the production line, you always, there, there was always some error. Like you can't get away from error. There's always going to be some faulty products, faulty coloring. Um, faulty sizing. So some of the people in that line had realized that they were just throwing this stuff away. And, and um, they're like, well, can we not do something with this? They created a program where they actually regrinded that those products, they regrinded it down and then put it back um, into, put part of it back into the production line and regrind and then used the other part of it to be drain tiles underneath football fields and in turf football fields. So they found different uses for both of those things, um, and they were able to use those products that help the bottom line and that provide financial savings. So in any industry, I mean, you can always find things. And that's why I like to say sustainability revolves around efficiency, um, because that's a great example of just seeing that. But that's what I'll, I'll leave on, Nadine. And, and thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking about everything that you did. Um, I, I am a big believer in education around everything. And if we can educate um, the public um, about sustainability, um, then I think that we are going to be way better off on achieving the global goals that, that have been set. Well, thank you for having me, Preston. I, I wish you all the best in continuing to have these really important conversations. And it was a pleasure to be a part of it. <laughs>